0: You're listening to a Wheeler Center podcast. I don't know how to write in the city. I still can't write a book set in a city. It has every time I write something, it's like set in this little country town every time. My my brain still thinks I'm there.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our afternoon's conversation with Holden Shepherd. Um, before I begin, um, I would like to acknowledge that this event is taking place on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to the eldest, past, present, and emerging. Um, as I'm sure you all know, Holden Shepherd is an award winning author. Born and Bred in Geraldton, Western Australia. His debut novel, Invisible Boys, has won multiple accolades, including the 2019 Australian Premier's Prize and was then shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards. Um, Invisible Boys is now in development as a TV series um, and I'm excited to ask a few questions about that project as we uh, talk. Um, And his new novel, Brink... Which we'll dive into today explores what happens. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> when a group of schoolies confront a life-changing tragedy on a trip they'll never forget. Um, so before we get into the book itself, um, Holden, I would like to take you back to Geraldton. Um, so um, your Um, your books are often very autobiographical and um, a lot of elements that seem to be drawn from your early life the location of Geraldton itself but also things like um, Catholic school and um, um, pop-up in your books so I'd be interested in hearing you talk a little bit about what it was like growing up in Geraldton um, and some of your early influences that have played out later on in your books.
0: Yeah, happy to. You, um, I was saying this to someone from Geraldton yesterday. Um, you can kind of... You can move away from Geraldton, but the Gero-Dero is always inside you, forever. Um, and and that's fine. I'm really comfortable with my inner Dero. You know, like, I'm OK with it. Um, I have a lot of affection for my hometown. Um, a lot of people who read Invisible Boys um, assumed that I hated it. Like, I would get messages from people who grew up in Geraldton. Um, for those who don't know, it's about 400 k's north of Perth. So, fairly isolated... Um, about 40,000 people now, about 30,000 when I was growing up. Um, but, yeah, there was a lot of this assumption of, like, yeah, I hated it too and that's why I got away. I really liked growing up in the country. I really enjoyed being there, um, but my characters didn't. So um, the first line from Charlie in Invisible Boys is, like, there are two ways out of this poxy shithole of a town, you know, and, <laughs> and so everyone assumed that I thought Geraldton was this poxy shithole of a town. Um and, you know, it kind of is sometimes. Um, you know, there's not a lot to do there other than get get drunk or get high or, you know, whatever. Um, but I just, I, I liked that vibe. I liked growing up in a kind of chill place. I still feel really at home in the country. Um, so I love going there. But, yeah, it does seep into everything I do. Like, I don't know how to write in the city. I still can't write a book set in a city. It has Every time I write something, it's like set in this little country town every time. My, my brain still thinks I'm there.
1: Yeah. Is, um, is 40,000 people small enough that everyone truly does know everyone? As it sort of <laughs> sometimes appears in your books, that feeling that everyone's watching everyone all the time?
0: Yeah, it's still, it's still that size that you can... Um, if you don't know someone's name, you know their face or you know their brother or you know their mum or, like, you've worked with someone in their family. Um, so it's that kind of place where you're being watched. So especially if you're growing up gay or or anything, um, or if you just have a secret full stop, actually, in a a town that size, it's very hard to find a way to be yourself.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, I noticed that um, you have on your website and in some of your promotional materials this sentence that really stuck with me, which was, when young Holden Shepherd discovered feelings weren't something boys were meant to talk about, he began to write down his stories instead. Um, which suggests that maybe in this small town where everyone's watching, you had kind of a hidden world of your own that you started to explore in words. Um, I would love to hear about that transition from discovering your inner world to starting to write about it to thinking that maybe this could be a book, something that could be,
0: like, read and viewed from the outside. This is just, like, the coolest question ever. Thanks, (laughs) Kat. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, so I started, and I actually really like that you interpreted that as I started writing stories at a young age, because I had that line up on my website or wherever it is, um, and some media outlet once, like, just was like, oh, so you used to keep diaries, and and they like, ran this whole story about how I started writing diaries, and I was like, no, I didn't. Like, I never wrote down what was really happening. Um, I really liked just making shit up, and I felt very empowered by being able uh, to have a space. Like, if you're in a town like that, if you're in a family like mine, like... Six kids, Catholic, Italian, Australian, just chaos, people everywhere. Um, and I was one of the little ones. So there was just like a lot of big people around me. Um, and I didn't really have a lot of space for me. So that was my little space. Um, it's pretty off-brand, but I will talk about where it started. Um, yeah. It started with Ina Blyton. Um, that is off-brand. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm like, I don't want to, you know, I am a punk really. Um, but uh, it, it, uh, it didn't start that way. Um, does anyone still know Inna Blighton? Do people still read her? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> good. Um, so yeah, I used to read those stories when I was like seven, and I was reading like this the boarding school stories, like Mallory Towers. And oh,
1: right, and Naughty girl in the school, and no yeah,
0: yeah, there. and like you know, they had like a midnight feast and you know that kind of thing. So I was like, okay, this is cool, but like they're all set in the 40s and they're all like little British girls. Like, I was like, Where's the Aussie boy who goes to, you know. And there wasn't a story like that. So I started writing my own... It was called First Form at Clifton Towers. Um,
1: Amazing.
0: Yes. Wait, it gets better because (laughs) there was no plot other than, like, they built a school on a cliff and Jake... Clifton Towers. Jake was going to Clifton Towers and then kids would keep falling off the cliff. And that was like... (laughs) You know, and so most of the plot was trying to save these kids from falling. Um, It was not good writing. It was not like a prodigy seven-year-old who was going to become an artist one day. It was just like really shit in a blatant like fantasy. But it
1: was high concept.
0: It was, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, I thought I could sell it. And I actually had a little thing in the book saying, this book will cost $2.75 when it's sold at Target. that's amazing. I was really quite convinced. That is amazing.
1: Sorry, how old were you when you were writing this? Seven. Seven years old. Yeah. Um, oh, that's fantastic! And so, all right, well, that was the that was the earliest beginnings. Yeah. How did that transform? What were the other stories that you told on your way to Invisible Boys?
0: Um, I I kept doing knockoff stuff actually for a long time. Um, when I was a teenager, I wrote Pokemon fanfiction, um, which is um, this is just terrible. Like, as an artist, <laughs> like, where do, you know, what are your influences? Ina Blight and Pokemon. Um, but that's where I started. I wrote Pokemon fanfic for about ten years, like literally from yeah. As soon as I hit kind of 12, 11 or 12, um, until I hit my 20s, I was writing fanfic. And I think there was some sense of, like, being able to express stuff through something that felt made up. But also, if you look at any of the stuff I wrote pre-university, it's all, like... um, everyone, not everyone was happy, bad things happened, but the main character had a really solid group of found friends, found family, like, so, like someone they could absolutely rely on. So they, you know, that, that core group, whatever adventures they went through, they always had each other's back and there was never the sense that you were going to get stabbed in the back, which is probably the opposite of how I felt. Like I had a lot of friends that I just didn't feel safe around or family who were horrible or whatever. So I think in my writing, it was like, here's this nice space. Um, I can create for myself and no-one can tell me otherwise.
1: Yeah, I don't... It's, yeah, that's really interesting. I don't. I mean, in a way, I don't think it's that unusual for queer writers to have a period where they write fanfic, especially 10-plus mm. years ago when there wasn't so much queer fiction on shelves, but there was a lot of queer energy that was gestating on the internet, almost like beta-testing the stories that were about <laughs> to explode into the commercially published world later. Mm. Was that
0: your experience as well, or...? I didn't, I didn't start putting any character with any kind of sexuality thing in until um, I was still finishing that fanfic when I was at uni. And it was once I was at uni that I kind of started going, like, I can write about this stuff. So, like, my first year, like, I'm, you know, working class kind of background. No one in my family had gone to uni. Um, I went to uni to study creative writing. And the first year was just the worst year ever because... I just was like, I don't belong here. You know, like, everyone had read every book ever and everyone knew literature and everyone was so smart and had all these references to stuff. And I was like, in a button, Pokemon. You know, like, that was my thing. Yeah. Um, So I came in and I was just like, I don't belong. And, you know, I was working as a labourer and like a night filler and I was like, this just doesn't gel. So I went went back home to Geraldton that summer and I said to my parents, I'm quitting uni. I'm just going to be a labourer and I'll write in my spare time. Um, And then during that summer is when I kind of was like, oh, what if it was okay that I like guys? Like I, and I had that kind of pivotal moment. And so I went, okay, I'm just going to give it one more shot. went back to uni and I just started writing what I knew. And yeah. so it, it started, uh, my first story was called A Man and it was about a man who was a labourer. And uh, it's not great, but it was probably the first time it was not imagined, safe, fantasy, whatever. It was actually about a guy who had some similarity to me. And that was the first thing I got published. And then that started um, building... From there.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. So that was a deliberate switch from, like, writing the fantastical, writing something that was completely made up... Yeah. ..to drawing from your own life and experiences and writing that, which is what you've m- done for the most part going forward.
0: Yeah, it was like... It, like, it, the sexuality and, and that kind of understanding who I was happened at the same time. And that kind of... The, the other part of it was that I had a really great lecturer at university called um, Dr Marcella Pallain. And she is a poet, but she kind of went because I was this very angry 18, 19-year-old, whatever whatever I was. So my end of, like, end of semester assignment, uh, you had to do, like, a journal about what we'd learned, literary theory. And I was just really, like, an angry little shit. Like, I was really... It was (laughs) not appropriate. Like, but she's like, just write whatever you think. So I was like, I hate this. I think, you know, postmodernism is shit. And this is... Like, I was just... Can I swear on this, by the way? Because there's a lot happening. Um, I forgot to... It's not radio, right? YOLO. Um, It's how I am. Um... But yeah, like I was really open about it. And what I got in the response, I thought I was looking get like a fail grade or something and I was like, I don't care. I'm, you know, I'm done with this. I'm going to just go back to work. Um, and Marcella was like, this is fine. This is what being an artist is. Like you're responding to stuff. But if you are angry about something, why don't you interrogate it? And that was, that was kind of what switched everything for me because it was like, oh, I'm not being told I have to do the, everything the way they're teaching at uni. They're just showing me the world of literature they're just showing me all these different theories as an artist i can interpret them however i want no one had ever given me that agency so it was like now you can write whatever you want if you want to write yourself and it's a crap story it doesn't matter you have agency to do that it how did
1: you things. find um the experience of studying creative writing at uni interact with your own art as- aside from that because i know you know it can be a little bit formulaic it really trains everyone to write like a literary short story mm.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah um i don't know like i that was a fear i don't know if it's a fear that materialized i I don't think it probably did change me a little bit um but i think my own voice kind of comes through i think because i was doing things like fanfic and i was doing blogging sometimes and that kind of stuff you kind of as an author you find your voice through through doing those kind of things so i think i managed to resist that or or maybe i didn't and i just can't tell
1: um I saw on your blog you wrote about a turning point that you had in 2014 where you renounced work and decided, like, I am an artist now. And I saw that you put a photo of your own arm where you wrote the words, (laughs) I will swallow every capitalist ambition I have ever had, choke it down like dry bread, and become a bloodhound for my core self. (laughs) Which... (laughs) <laughs> Which is so <laughs> fantastic and um, and I think um, and I know from the experiences of uh, my own experience and, th- and those around me on their journey to become writers that in a way you do have to make that kind of intense promise to yourself in mm. order to even be able to produce a novel. So how did you get to that point? How, what, mm. was the, what was the turning point for you that drove you to write those words?
0: Yeah, it's the first time anyone had ever in history asked me about that <laughs> and, I, um, and I'm partly embarrassed and I'm, and I'm partly like it's um, actually perfect that it's asked now as opposed to any other time in the last three years um, because that moment and that writing that on my arm is why I wrote that book. Um, so I, it was New Year's Day um, 2014 and I'd done my uni, I'd done honours year, like I'd done as much study as I could And then I went working full-time and because I was kind of told... Again, I'm not kind of part of a literary family or anyone who really gets it. So, they were like, well, you're done with uni now. Like, You've wasted all your time on that. Go get a big-boy job. Um, And so, I was like, okay, I get a big-boy job. And I worked in a bank for a while, um, which, again, off-brand and also not very fun. Um, Sorry if there's anyone in the bank um, here. (laughs) It might be your passion. It just wasn't mine. Um, But I, I did that. And then it kind of got to New Year's Day 2014. And I just had a real angry moment of like, because New Year's, I don't know about you, but I always like set my goals for the new year and I'm going to do this and I'm going to write a book and I'm going to you know, edit this book and whatever. And that year I was just sitting there and I was like, I'm 25 or whatever I was. I'm 25 and I've been writing since I was seven and I was dead set going to be published when I was eight, I thought. And now I'm 25 and I'm sitting here and I'm an unpublished author. I don't even have a book written. I have nothing. And I got really, really angry. And I wrote that on my arm. <laughs> and... Uh, and then I started writing. I was like, this is it. I just have to start writing something. And I wrote the very first version of um, The Brink. That was the very first thing I ever wrote as, a, as an adult. Yeah, um, so
1: it predates Invisible Boys. You started working on it before Invisible Boys. It predates Boys. Invisible
0: Boys. And even the fantasy book that I wrote before Invisible Boys that I subbed around and, and that got rejected, it predates everything. It started with um, a bus exploding <laughs> at, um, at caddaby which is like a servo um, north of Perth. Um, and there were these five characters who kind of came away from that explosion. And those five characters morphed into uh, Leonardo, Kaya, Mason, Jared and Val in The Brink.
1: What was your reason for putting it on the back burner and turning to Invisible Boys and the, um, the fantasy novel that I'm also really curious about? <laughs> yeah, it's not good.
0: Like, don't, <laughs> I don't want to get people excited about this thing. Like, it's in the drawer for a reason probably. Um, but I wrote, so I wrote that for a bit, uh, like a version of The Brink, went away from it, wrote this fantasy novel... And I subbed that, and that's why Invisible Boys happened, because um, I spent about three years writing a YA fantasy adventure, um, which I think was awesome. It was like Matthew Riley, but teenage, kind of.
1: That does sound awesome.
0: I thought it would sell. Yeah. And uh, and it didn't. So I subbed it to agents, and um, one agent... So all of them passed, except one agent who said, I want to read the whole thing. He read the first three chapters and he said, I want to read the whole thing. Um, and then I was going for a jog and then my phone rang and it was the agent, this agent dude from Sydney. And I answered the phone and I was like, oh my God, it's so great to hear from you. And he's like, oh, Holden, uh, you might want to hear what I have to say first before you say it's good to hear from me. <laughs> it was a 30 minute rejection phone call. Wow. Um, yeah, have you ever been rejected for thirty minutes? Solid. It sucks. <laughs> um, wow. it's, it's brutal. Yeah, I, I didn't, and I didn't think agents spent any time. If they reject you, they just—it's an email and off they go. I think he kind of liked the story, and he could see promise in it. Yeah. But he also really wanted me to do things to make it sellable. I think, um, and that was just not what the story was. Right. So, but the thing he told me on that phone call—he's like, "Your writing is competent," and I actually got really hurt by that. Because I was like, you want your bank manager to be competent or, you know, your engineers should be competent. But as an artist, you should be making people feel stuff. Um, and I was like, my books don't make people feel anything. Like th- at that stage, my books didn't make anyone feel anything at all. And so that's where Invisible Boys came from. I, I kind of went back to, um, there's a quote from Hemingway, write hard and clear about what hurts. And I thought, I'd, that's probably what I need to do. I'm going to put some feeling and some heart into my books. I need to do that. And so it turns out lots of stuff had hurt me.
1: Yeah. So you turned to your own feelings, what made you feel, and then wrote from there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just tried to tap into, like, what's going on. Because possibly a little bit what we're talking about in the green room earlier. Like, you just don't tap into that stuff. And sometimes you don't even know what's going on. And then you you start tapping into it in your work. And you're like, oh, this has been here the whole time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um. You've said that it took you eight years to write Brink. Mm. Is that because... Oh, why, why is that? And, and
0: um, Just all the delays, just all the sidetracked kind of projects. So, doing, kind of doing a fantasy novel, um, then doing Invisible Boys. Um, and then after Invisible Boys, which kind of did well, um, you know, in Australia it did well, um, I was just, like, crapping bricks. Like, I just didn't know if I could write something as good or, you know, like what the expectation was of writing a second book. Um, so that probably slowed me down a little bit.
1: One of the things that I think I admire most about your books is that they are unique and they probably shouldn't be. <laughs> um, and, you know, if I, if I think about a majority of queer fiction that we have in the YA space at the moment, there's a lot of fantasy and a lot of escapist fiction. Um, and then there's a lot of very charming contemporary romance that is also not really real. <laughs> um, it's another form of escapism. Um, whereas in your work, I find that you have just a really clear-eyed view on a lot of the the messy, difficult problems of adolescence. Um, and I'm curious, when you started to write, were you aware that you writing into a gap that they weren't really antecedents to your work is that something is that something you were conscious of how did you come to f- to be this unique voice in the space
0: yeah this is a really good question because I don't know and I actually I don't think I don't think I'm being that gritty but I think I my work is standing out for that reason um, but I think I'm just writing what I know but my adolescence was like that like I was doing the stuff that the teenagers in invisible boys did and the proof is kind of in the pudding. The amount of messages I've had over the last three years from anyone, from just about any background, but especially gay men um, who grew up in the country and did really similar things and suffered in really similar ways, that's just what teenagers go through. And I don't think it changes that much whether society is, like, super embracing of it at a superficial, you know, high level, macro level. Um, at the micro level, there's always going to be teenagers who are going, ah, I'm struggling with this shit. And so that's why I, I think it's important. But I, I'm i kind of surprised, like you, that there isn't more of this being embraced. And I've kind of... I have started to talk about this a little bit more um, with respect to people who are writing really lovely, fluffy romance stuff. Um, like, that's nice. And Heartstopper's nice. Um, and, and all the other things um, out there are nice. And I'm definitely, like, I'm not having a go at anyone because um, there's a place for that, right? Um, but when when my first agent was subbing Invisible Boys, um, there was one publisher who actually point blank said, well, we've, I think it was something like, we've got same-sex marriage now, um, so we just want happy gay stories. And like, that, that, was the, that was the push. It was like, we, we're done with that now, everything is solved, and now we want things where you know, just everything's fine. Um, and there's totally a place for that. Like, there's totally a place for the romance, there's totally a place for the happy stuff. But I was like, give us the, you know, the real life stuff as well.
1: Yeah, I think if there's one word that comes to mind when I when I read your books is is fearless. It really um you know isn't is unafraid to push into difficult spaces and um in a way <laughs> it does make me contextualise some of the, that happier, more sort of model minority queer stories as maybe if still a little bit of fear is lingering in them. Um, mm. I wondered, you know, do you ever have any temptation to back off from some of the material when you're writing? Do you, um, you know, do you have any internal struggles around that?
0: No, and my publisher's here. And uh, I, I, I feel very encouraged um, by my publisher for this book and, and for Invisible Boys. Um that I'm, I'm welcome to kind of show up and tell it like it is. And so I've never, to me, that's probably the value in what I do. Like the reason I have any success or any voice in, in this space is because I am doing that and trying to, I'm not scared of putting it out there. And it is sometimes cringe and it is sometimes way too exposing and it's way too vulnerable and it's mining trauma and whatever else. But I'm, I'm not actually scared of putting it out there. So I don't ever think about reducing that down. Because I think if I did, there would be no point to what I do. If I did, like, The Brink but, like, pull out all the, like, rough edges or Invisible Boys but take out all the suicide shit, like, what's the point? Like, that's – I don't think anyone would read it. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> Although it almost sounds like from your experiences there have been some industry people that have been tempted to back off from material like the advice you got from your first agent to make the book more quote-unquote commercial, well, or whatever yeah, that might mean.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I think other people, like other authors, you know, our, our colleagues, you know, I think there probably are other people who go, I'd like to do this but I don't think I'll be given permission or I don't think I'll have space to do it. Um, and so there is probably a pressure for them to write Safer stuff. I don't know, like, to uh, to you, uh, I'm sure, like, we've both had this feeling that YA is sanitised in some ways.
1: Yeah, I think... Um, yes, I th- and I think my experience of it has been probably before gay marriage. Um, mm. It was very Kurt and, and Blaine... Um, a perfect gay couple because we want to get gay marriage so we have to present being gay as the most ch- uh-huh. charming inoffensive thing possible and that's our ticket to um, acceptance mm. and then um, and then afterwards perhaps a feeling of don't rock the boat I'm not sure I feel I, I have somewhere deep inside me this feeling that we've reached acceptance when we can tell stories about um, unlikable queer characters just as easily as we can likable queer characters.
0: Yes. Uh, this, uh, what you just said about the same I think we really did that. I think we really did this thing of, like, let's make ourselves as, like, de-sexed as possible. Yes. And, and like, let's not be dirty or horny yes. because those things are bad and, um, and we'll make it through. And I think we have got stuck on that mode of, like, now let's not rock the boat because we're being accepted. But I don't think that's what we should be doing in the art.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, um, it's a lot of the uncomfortable stuff in, in your work, especially Brink, that I personally identified the most. I wanted to ask you about about Mason one of the ways that I felt really connected to his character was, first of all, his early experiences of... How can I put this? Being gay before he understood that he was gay. So, a- a- acting on impulses before he had a self-construct, like, I am a gay man. Um, and you portray that cognitive dissonance that he has really well in the book. I'm, I'm interested in hearing you talk about that that maybe that period of, of time before you one reaches self acceptance but also how you um went about portraying it in the book from a craft sense.
0: Yeah, um Mason is I mean the brink's just come out. Has anyone read it yet? Or has anyone got it yet? No, it's you guys have. I know you yeah. Um yeah, so Mason is kind of my way of I think trying to be clear of what I was trying to do with Hammer in Invisible Boys. So Hammer was kind of the footy jock and he was I mean his He's a dick. And and people responded to him appropriately. Like, he, he's not a likeable character. Um, but the the response seemed to be like, okay, well, if, if Hammer could just accept it, then he would stop doing this kind of footy thing and he'd stop being that guy. And I was like, oh, no, I want to really clearly make the point that you can be that guy and you can also be attracted to men and that's okay. Like, those two things can exist in the same body. And I don't think I see that represented in, in a way that it is not problematized. Like, if you ever see that in a TV show, it's like, here's the jock, and once he works out, he's secretly just homophobic because he's gay. He'll stop being a jock and he'll be dancing to Lady Gaga and everything will be fine. Um, and so I wanted to show, like, Mason is who he is um, and he's a, he's a much nicer version of Hammer, maybe. Um, but, yeah, you can go a long time, like, doing stuff and being like, and I'm straight. You know, like, that, like that was my experience growing yeah, up. Yeah, like, and, and, and mine as well. Guy. Yeah. So
1: I, someone had to tell me I was gay. I was like, oh, no, I'm not. And they're <laughs> like, well, think about the last four people that you've been
0: with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, but you can just go a long time... Yes. ..absolutely convincing yourself that, no, this isn't what's happening.
1: Yeah. Um, and I think another part of Mason's kind of relationship to sexuality that I found fascinating and very relatable was that there it is interlinked with this threat of violence of exposure, that when, when his identity is exposed violence might be the result. So he's um, got a crush on his um, best friend, Jared, um, and, um, and yet he's very fearful that, you know, if he speaks to Jared about his feelings, there might be a violent reaction. The threat of violence lingers across the whole book because of it's a sort of suspense thriller. Um, and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing you talk about that link between sexuality and violence that, it, that several of the characters are dealing with.
0: Yeah, it's um this is something that I've only come up against as a question when other people read my stuff, um I'm not trying to put violence in there, but I think it's just what I grew up around. So like so people like in every so with Invisible Boys, with people who who read it or reviewed it, or or now with the brink, um uh, yeah, people have been like, Oh there's you know, there's this constant threat of violence or there's this fear of violence overhanging every character and every every book that I've done. And i wasn't aware of it i'm just so used to living that way like i was just so used to growing up with um i won't name them because this is being recorded um but you know i i grew up with people you know with with friends around me who did not make me feel safe i grew up with family members who made me incredibly intimidated and from a really young age you know so you grow up with that just being normal like there will be really bad dangerous repercussions if I am known as whatever, gay, if that's what I am, or whatever else. Um, So I think I'm just subconsciously reflecting that in the work because that's what I was scared of. And as an adult now, I'm not scared of it. Um, But I've never really sat there and processed that that was a violent experience or that was an experience of a threat even. But you are right. That's what I was doing.
1: Yeah, and the other fascinating thing for me is the way that, that there's a lot of adolescents that are and and older teenagers that are dealing with sexuality or sexual impulses and drives um, almost before they're emotionally ready to be having them. So they're, um, they're they're entering into experiences that they don't necessarily have a context for processing emotionally. Um, I'm thinking particularly of um, there's a couple of characters in The Brink that have um, Brief uh, sexual experiences with much older men, um, mm, mm. and um, and um, I'm I'm curious to hear you talk about that aspect of adolescence and how you navigate that while writing.
0: Yeah, again, like that kind of stuff. Like I think that kind of stuff specifically is why some schools, when they when they book me for like a talk or something, they'll be like, "Can you come do a talk?" And I'll be like, "Yeah, I'd love to. Like I can't wait to talk about my book." oh, no, we don't want you to talk about the book. <laughs> and, um, and, and I'll be like, oh, okay, well, I'll talk about me. No, we don't want you to talk about you either. <laughs> and it's like, well, what are you booking me for? I don't understand why I would show up. Um, and I've, I've actually gone back to them sometimes and said, is it, is it the gay thing or is it the sex thing? Or well, it's a bit of both. It's the gay it's sex both. thing. It's the gay sex thing. Um, but it's all of it. I, I think it's just seen as, like, we really shouldn't talk about this in any context when people are under 18, But it's like, this is absurd, because we know that once we hit puberty, you know, teenagers are doing all kinds of shit. Um, And so we need to be having some kind of conversation around this, and some kind of representation of, when you're a teenager especially, some of the experiences you have are not great. Like, and I don't just mean not fulfilling, but like they shouldn't happen. Like, the kind of things that happen, even with like Charlie or Zeke and Invisible Boys, um, you know, those things shouldn't happen. They happen to me. Like, they're things that I've represented, but um, they shouldn't happen, but we've got to find space to talk about them and to talk about life being really messy sometimes, like it is. It's not. It's not perfect.
1: Yeah, it makes me reflect. As I was growing up, sort of. Everyone was closeted. Well, I grew up in the 80s, which I guess is like growing up in Geraldton. <laughs>
0: um. <laughs> the 80s came to Geraldton in, like, 1993. That's right. So.
1: Um, and, um, you know, when when you when you're, all your peers are closeted, mm. um, but yet you're exploring your sexuality, it often means you can't do that with people of your own age because they're all in the closet. Yep. And so it does put you in these uncomfortable situations sometimes with, like, older people. Uh, that was yep. a part of the book that I found
0: very relatable. Mm, mm. And it's... Yeah. It's real, we find a way or we use technology or we do something else. Mm. Um, kids these days are very lucky. Just even to have a smartphone. You know, like, they don't know the terror of you know, logging onto the family computer. Like, that was just, right. oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> do you right. know, like, you had to clear your history and your temporary internet files, and yeah, it was stressful.
1: Um, I'm really interested to ask how class influences your writing. Um. Um, you know, I, um, like you, I'm from a working class Italian family. And, um, but yet, if I think about the writers that I know and interact with in Australia, I can, the working class writers, I could probably count on the fingers of one hand. Um, So, I think we often talk about Australia not really having been classless or um, egalitarian, but it's not necessarily so much the case. And I just wonder if you, I wonder how you think of your background um, from like a blue collar background influencing your work.
0: Yeah, um... I didn't know you're Italian, so we'll have to talk about that later. Yeah. We'll have to do the like which part? Are you from the north or the south? The south. Um, oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Sicilia. Um, Calabria. Oh, cala- Oh, you're Calabresia. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're natural enemies then. That's true. <laughs> um,
1: only if there's no northerners around. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Otherwise we're lumped in together. Um, sorry, everyone else who's not Italian. <laughs> um, if you're in it, if you're in the audience and you are Italian though, you would have loved that. Um what was the question? Um, class. Oh, class. <laughs> something about class. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, I think this is something... I don't think we talk about it as, like, a diversity point the way that it is. Like, it is a diversity point. Um, but we kind of... We focus on every other one, which is... Should, like, we should be doing those. Um, but we don't focus on, yeah, being working class and coming into the world of writing. It's just a total trip. Um... And it probably influenced... Like, my characters are often working class. I, I, I'm from a blue-collar background. Like, Dad was in earth moving. All us boys worked as labourers with him. I still work as a labourer. Um, casual. I'm writing as well. I am doing my job. Um, Were you the
1: first person in your family to go to university?
0: Yeah. 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 Um, and, yeah, that, like, that completely influences your whole worldview. But probably, like, what I was describing before. Like, when you go to uni from that kind of background... You kind of you, you get into a room of people and you just feel immediately intimidated and immediately dumb and not good enough to be there. Um, I think that would I genuinely think that still happens. That will be locking out a whole heap of blue-collar writers and artists just generally, because they'll go to something like that and they won't have the resilience to stick it out. They won't know that you have to form networks and and do all this other stuff. Um so I do think we should be doing more in that space to, like, encourage blue-collar artists, writers, whatever, into this world. We mm. we need more of them.
1: Even to conceive of it as a job, I think, is really difficult. It's like being an astronaut. Like, yes, it's a job, <laughs> but not for me. Well, that, that's yeah. the feeling.
0: Yeah, well, it, and my family was literally... Like, I, I did a degree in it. I I topped my university's degree in that thing. Like, I you know, I, I was good at writing. And then the family's response was like, time to get a big-boy job, go work in the bank, because... That's what you do. If yeah. you're from that background, you have to get a full-time job and if you're not working full-time, you're wasting your time and you're being, you know, frivolous.
1: Yeah. Um, your books have got a very distinct voice to them um, and I would say that the prose style... I, I remember the first book of yours that I read, I, I, I went in and thought, oh, this, this is just Holden's prose style. This is how Holden writes. And then um, the book segued into uh, one of the characters... Um, was in a much more emotional place and just segued into a much more like lyrical, intentionally lyrical writing style and I realised that the voice you'd been doing earlier was intentional or considered. So I'm curious to hear about how you construct voice when you write um, the the choices that you make in terms of, of how your characters speak and talk. Mm.
0: Um, um, yeah, I, the letter bombs it sounds like what you're thinking of. Yeah. Um, Yeah, when it goes kind of that stream of consciousness vibe. Um, Yeah, I don't know. This is going to sound really simple, but I every time I write a point of view character, so if I have three different points of view in um, any given book, um, which I did with Invisible Boys, and then again with this book, um, I always have a word for uh, like their type, like what they are. Which, like, it's actually going to sound really terrible, and it's probably going to make my writing sound really stereotyped. But I always have a their type, and then they have an attitude as well. And so I know that anytime I'm writing that character, the attitude is this word. So like Zeke was a, like a nerd. And so I knew he was a nerd. But then his attitude was that he was <laughs> shy. This is going to sound so basic. Like, hi, this is how to write a book. Um, but, but that's what I did. And so I kind of went, okay, I'm tapping into, like I'm not tapping into like a nerd who's shy. I'm tapping into the part of me that is shy. So it was like, this is the attitude. I, I'm going to tap into the part of me that is this. And then I'm going to write from that place. So, like, every time I wrote from Zeke, it was like, I, this is how I feel when I'm shy, when I'm scared of people. If I'm writing Charlie, this is how I feel when I'm really angry. And when I'm writing Hammer, this is how I feel when I'm, like, a really cocky asshole. Um, which was fun, because you actually don't get to do that in real life very often, by the way. People don't like it. It's um, <laughs> weird. Um, but, but doing that was probably my favourite thing. Like, writing Hammer and writing Mason is probably the funnest thing to tap into. Oh,
1: that's fascinating. Um, I thought that it seemed like you're also having a lot of fun in Brink with Val as well. Was that the case?
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I hope. I, yeah. I, it was. It was interesting to write female characters, and, and especially like a female point of view character, because I don't. Um, I don't know if I've got that right. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just kind of hoping that I'm not doing the classic male writer doing, you know, like female character breasting boobly down the stairs or whatever the, the saying is. <laughs> Um, Like, I don't think my female characters are breasting boobily anywhere, I hope. Um, They have breasts, but they're not... Anyway. um, I I think I've avoided that. But, yeah, I was just very aware that, like, the authenticity is not going to... It's not not necessarily going to be the same as it is with Leonardo or with Mason. Like, if I'm writing from Kaya's point of view, if I'm writing a scene with Val and Kaya. Um, But I have observed enough of that. I grew up with three sisters. Um, I've observed a lot of it, in fact. And, uh... And I thought, okay, well, I think I can kind of draw enough real stuff from this. Um, So I hope it came off okay.
1: Yeah. What was the reason for moving from the all male world of Invisible Boys to something that was more, or to writing female characters and female point of view characters?
0: I have no idea. I I don't like everything I write is quite male focused. Um, My third book, which I've just finished and sent off, sent off to you. uh, my third book is extremely like it's back to that just like masculinity kind of stuff. There's one point of view character and it's a, a dude, um, and I don't think I'll ever go back to a female point of view. I I don't really know why it happened, but just when I sat there with like a group of teenagers, I think maybe just inherently I wanted to reflect uh, a breadth of the teenage experience. Whereas like Invisible Boys was like a gay book, you know, like and it was seen that because it was three boys and it was three gay boys. Um, and I think I wanted maybe this one to be, like, this can be more broadly read as this is a book about the teenage years. you got a straight boy, you've got a straight girl, and then you've got a gay guy as well.
1: I'm really curious if there's anything that you can tell us about this third book that is on submission at the moment or uh, that's just been handed in. Sorry, It has just been
0: handed in to the lovely Jane. I'm going to look at her because I haven't I haven't seen her since I emailed. It. <laughs> um, is it good? Um, <laughs> 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 um, I've just sent it off, so this this is my first book for adults, so I'm actually breaking away from the y a uh, for this book uh and it is it's less mining teenage trauma and more um being pretty honest about where I am now, so it's like like a Sicilian Australian gym junkie with anger issues uh, hitting his thirties. Um, I can't tell you who have based this off it's a secret um, <laughs> but um it's it and it's really kind of unified in a way that the first two books weren't like I I used to feel like I had to split myself into those three narrators and put parts of my identity in each of those people whereas this one I've really just shown up as it's one narrator it's one guy going through one specific thing.
1: Um, I have to also ask you about your gym routine. Just give us a really quick <laughs> breakdown. We'll just hear about the gains, and then we'll move to audience questions. You know,
0: my gains have been so bad lately because I was working. Because <laughs> I was working on that book, um, I've been hardly going to the gym compared to how I usually do. Um, I found a gym this morning though. Ah. Oh. Um, yeah, I found one that did a free trial because I did want to. It's like it's like if you go to a new city and you go to a gym one day, it's like thirty-five bucks. I was like, I'm not doing that. Um, But they had a free trial. I was like, yes, I'd like to trial this gym to see if I'll join. Um, So that was nice. That Um, is nice. I won't be joining because I don't live here.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, Holden. This has been a fantastic discussion. And thank you, everyone, for coming out here. I'd like to huge round of applause for our guests. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Kat. This was C.S. Packett in conversation with Holden Shepherd. This interview took place on August 4th, 2022 at the Wheeler Centre. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.